Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know what Priscilla, Sarit Hoshkis, Vida Ona, Colette St. John, and Andre Silva have in common? That's right. They're all supporting members of Team Human. You can become one too by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. Then you'll get access to our archives of articles. You'll get behind the medium paywall to read all the stuff I'm writing there. And you'll get to come onto the Team Human Discord where we do our live Team Human salons that become part of our monthly show. So, Come on and join us, teamhuman.fm. See you there. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, where the esoteric meets the metal, the mystical finds its ground, and the weird, well... The weird just rolls the day. It's 2023 and all bets are off. It's now or never. I'm committed to making this work out. Are you? I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, my favorite historian and practitioner of alternative spirituality and the author of the new collection, Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences, Mitch Horowitz. I don't think we as a human community are going to make it if if we don't get in front of this hateful language that populates most online discourse, including in the most mundane matters where somebody will be a smartass just because they can and think it has no effect whatsoever. It has an effect on the individual, the individual doing it as much as the person toward whom it's directed. Mitch is going to help us figure out if we're praying to the wrong gods. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Man, this is already the year of AI. I can't tell how much is hype and how much is real, but uh, I'm I'm back 
on CNN, you know, <laughs> whenever CNN calls, it means that something's happening, right? Not to me. I mean, something in the technology world that people are confused about. And this time, it's their back. Uh, I don't know when the last time was, but now it's AI. And they wanted me to come on and talk about chat GPT. It's this, basically, there's a, a website you can go to open.ai and play with this thing where you can say, oh, write me an essay of a thousand words on, you know, comparing a uh, 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 Scarlett O'Hara and uh, uh, Meghan Markle or something, and it'll generate this thing. And um, so CNN was interviewing me about it. They wanted to know, uh, what are the dangers of chat GPT? So, you know, I gave them this, this answer. I started uh, right into the camera. I was saying, well, one possibility is that language models like chat GPT could be used to generate fake news or other types of information. And this could be done by feeding the model biased or misleading information or using it to automatically generate large amounts of content that appears to be written by humans. I went through this whole thing and then I revealed afterwards and everything I just said was generated by chat GPT when I typed in the question that you sent to me in the email before the interview. And, you know, it turned into this kind of fun little media media prank. You know, <laughs> they, they were they were satisfied, right? Um, and and the bigger question really that I asked them was was does it matter? Right? Does it matter that the answer they got from me was GPT's answer because it filled their air? And and I guess the answer to the question of whether that matters that I didn't use my own words, that I just spoke words from ChatGPT, which were satisfactory to the news equation, is what were they after? You know, what were they really wanting to know with that question? I mean, we're supposed to be worrying that AI is so good, it will soon replace workers and humans in all aspects of life. But I'm not so sure we should be accepting the claims in the AI company press releases at face value. I, mean, I can still remember, and maybe this dates me, but I can still remember when people thought Adobe Photoshop was going to put all the designers out of business. And yeah, it changed print publishing and, and it required paste up people to learn new skills. But, but designers, after a month or two of everybody thinking that Photoshop and Illustrator and all the page design programs that made their work look indistinguishable from that of professional designers, we all began slowly to recognize those telltale visual signs of amateurs being led by the software. All those rave flyers that kind of looked exactly the same, that looked all Photoshoppy, real designers used Adobe's products as tools rather than the other way around. And likewise, neither calculators nor QuickBooks replaced accountants, and telephone answering systems still annoy everyone when they're used instead of real human receptionists. So questions about human replacement to me, and yeah, I'm using that word uh, intentionally, they seem intended to stress the inevitability of AI's commercial future. And they only distract us from the reality we should be looking at, which is that AI, it's way more costly in labor, money, and materials than is visible to the public. Today's open AI platform is energy intensive. It costs $100,000 a day to run that thing. And that's still just in a beta version being used for simple demos. The 
powerful computers and servers running AI, they require massive amounts of rare earth metals. And Silicon Valley firms are already competing with the EV industry for the rights to extract lithium deposits. And that takes human labor and impacts the environment. AI does not eliminate those costs. It simply shifts them from a more visible place to a less visible place. And as for, for kids cheating in school, well, I'll tell you, I've been reading stolen, downloaded, and purchased papers since I started teaching 20 years ago. And instead of entering the AI arms race and paying for some platform to analyze the writing of my students for signs of digital synthesis, I have just a, a five-minute discussion with each student about their paper after they turn it in. For the students who wrote their papers for real, it's a chance to interrogate their underlying assumptions. Those who didn't come up with their own ideas, they reveal themselves pretty darn quickly. Meanwhile, the threats posed by AI to art, literature, entertainment, they ultimately come down to what people are really after. Do you look at a Van Gogh painting purely for the retinal engagement? Are you interacting solely with the painting? Those are haystacks. Those are stars, right? Or are you connecting with the brilliant, sad human soul whose brush strokes created it? When you read Ulysses, are you really just taking in word combinations for the, the cognitive uh, jolt? Or are you sharing a thought space with James Joyce? I can understand purchasing an AI-generated pattern for my bathroom wallpaper or an area rug, but even then, there's a certain, certain aura it will lose if there's no human on the other side other than the enslaved workers at the factory and the lithium mines. AI's ability to generate deep fake videos and news stories, that doesn't frighten me either. It just puts us back where we were when we used to get our news from printed text. Anyone can put anything in the same font, print it out, and pass it around. The veracity of a news story has nothing to do with its production value and everything to do with the integrity of the institution producing it. Yeah, that's why news organizations are supposed to work within a system of journalistic standards and practices. They teach this stuff in journalism school and places like BBC and sometimes even CNN employ it. Your willingness to consider the ideas that I'm talking about right now is dependent on your trust in me, a human being with a reputation at stake and hopefully a track record of at least attempting to speak truthfully. You know, even, even CNN was ultimately unsatisfied with my AI-derived report. They wanted to know, really, they wanted to know what I, Douglas Rushkoff, a human being, really thinks. Because only a fellow human being with a heart and soul can believably and effectively provide comfort or provoke appropriate concern. It's never about the information, but the comportment and sheer presence of the other person. That's what this whole show has been about from the beginning. Because unlike those opening paragraphs I read at the beginning of this speech from the chat, you're not just connecting with words. You're connecting with me. Because what any writing, reading, speaking, hearing relationship really says is that we are in this together. Music. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mitch Horowitz is a really important person to me. I met him when he was editor of Penguin's esoteric imprint, Tarture Books. He came on the show back in 2015 or so and talked about his then new book, Occult America, after which he set out on his own, leaving his career and life behind in a way I found both exhilarating and challenging. He's gone on to speak and write a lot about American mysticism, especially a movement called Theosophy and all that power of positive thinking stuff that may have taken a dark turn with Norman Vincent Peale and Tony Robbins and Donald Trump and prosperity gospel, but still holds power as a form of, well, uh, power. It's been a while since I've had a conversation on the show that feels as open and honest and searching and vulnerable as the ones I have in real life. I'm happy to start our new year like this with my friend, Mitch Horowitz. There's many things I want to, I want to engage with you about. Um, and, and if I may kind of freely and honestly as, as people. All right. So I when I read your stuff, well, not when I read this book, this this latest book, um, Uncertain Places, I just I I I love all the. It's just nooks and crannies of joy. You know what I mean? It's got this feeling of like these different. It's like wandering around an, uh, a, an ancient city that you don't know, and you just keep going. Oh, here's a new weird place, and you're just there. You're suddenly, you know what I mean? I'm not worried about structure. I'm not worried about the overall arguments. I'm just like in a state of, 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 of wonder at the, at the arguments, but at the textures that inform the arguments. Do you know what I mean? It's like, let's be in this thought space a while, this headspace, And then how does that, how does that make me feel? Um, so in some ways the book refutes whatever my, my worries were, but my worries when I listen to you on podcasts is the amount of freedom you've afforded yourself is scary to me as uh, I'm a nice Jewish boy with <laughs> I'm responsible for my family and my earnings and my parents and all those kinds of things. And then I, I look at your, your, let's call it transformation. Cause it has no judgment. Mm-hmm. Then I look at your transformation and it reminds me of like my problems with the Buddha, which was always like, well, wait a minute. He kind of left his, you know, he left his family to go be the Buddha. And are we allowed to just do that? Just go and leave everything? 
<laughs> leave our things yeah. and be what and and my own will it's like to my own will be true it's like yeah i usually put my will kind of last i'm like i it's everybody else's will i mean maybe not the state but everybody else's will and then okay if there's room i'll get some of my will in there i mean did you do you wrestle with like the 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 dynamic between your responsibility to others and your responsibility to thine own true self I do wrestle with it. In fact, I was just wrestling with it last night. I was I was home alone as it happened and 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 I went into a very deep rabbit hole of rumination about that. I believe relationships are foundational to life and I believe that paying of debt is foundational to life in the broadest sense. I have very few relationships. I have relationships, obviously, with my two sons. I have relationships with my partner, Jacqueline. I have very few friends. I have business relationships. And I I am indebted to all those things. If, if you pay me to mow your lawn and I violate that agreement, I'm going to pay for that yeah. in a very serious way, all, all the more so uh, obligations to my children, obligations to my partner, obligations to my few friends. So I do take debt very seriously. Speaking of nice Jewish boys, there's a passage in the Talmud that has always been very meaningful to me, where a master asks his students, what are the marks of an evil man? And they all have very good answers. You know, some say a bad name, a bad heart, a bad eye. And one student says, uh, he who borrows and does not repay. And the master says, I approve of your words because everyone else's are enfolded in yours. And I take that very seriously. So that's part of my my search. I'm not a libertine. And uh, any one of us is, of course, free to break our word or dispense with relationships. But I think it's folly to assume that there's not grave debt there. Plus, it's not something that I wish to do. Right. So how would you describe kind of what what happened to you? I mean, now, you know, I mean, I was reading a lot well, in the moment, but I'm wondering, I guess now after living this way, well, yeah. I, I felt back in 2017 that my personal search was getting sort of stale. I found myself repeating things. I also found myself and I was very, very troubled by this and I'm still on the lookout for this. And that's a big part of my search. Everything that I was imbibing, every thought system that I was interested in was in large measure being reprocessed to me, and I was reprocessing it to myself through the Abrahamic religious traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, which seem overwhelmingly persuasive and familiar to many Western people by dint of centuries and centuries of repetition. But like all religions, they're just conceptual. Every religion, although it may contain splendid universal truths, including truths that I dropped to my knees before, nonetheless is the product of human hands. And I began to really question some of the familiarities, some of the decisions that had gotten made in the faiths and how and whether they applied to my search in the 21st century. And I began upending everything, uh, again, not outside the structure of relationships where I feel I, I'm sustained and I have something that I have to contribute back to that sustenance, but in terms of 
my conceptual view of reality, my view of how I related to, for example, deific energies or out energies that might be extra physical, if that's a part of my search, and questions about what is temporal and what is eternal and what where do these ideas of non-attachment, non-identification really come from? And where would one demarcate where the supposed mundane begins and the supposed uh, ethereal starts to kick in or where personality ends and essence begins or where you draw a line between supposed finite and infinite? And what if it's all one thing? And what if one change in that schema apropos of chaos theory or chaos magic, could reverberate throughout everything. So there was a whole retinue of structures that I thought were impeding my search. And and that 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 I suppose is the before and after of that aspect of my journey. I mean it's an interesting question because I've I've been stuck there, either stuck there or back and forth on that point, I guess, for a long, long time, where you know, I got over the idea of searching for enlightenment because there's such duality in that. Oh, before, what was it like before you were enlightened? <laughs> now what's it like after, right. you know? And every dude I knew who said he was enlightened was basically, you know, a blowjob masters, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. Give you, I'll give you some shock. Or we'll stick a shiv right between your ribs the yes. moment you look the other way. Really, yeah. either real or virtual, yeah. but yeah, one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then I look at, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in my own tradition in Judaism, okay, it's, you know, Shabbat. And now we're going to have this sacred time. And then at the end of the sacred time, we burn this special little wheat woven candle, have Havdalah and go back to secular time. And I'm like, well, what the fuck is this? I mean, I'm okay saying, okay, as a social construction, let's acknowledge from Friday night to Saturday night, let's acknowledge that we're living in a sacred space, but why shouldn't the whole thing be sacred. Why make that that distinction again? And then I end up getting it more into almost like sort of Krishnamurti, all paths are the path thing, you know. And, and but the problem then with that, if when I go to everything is sacred and all that is that is like, well, then what's my practice? What's what's left? Then I'm just living life. So it's really it's tricky. It's so tricky and it's so fascinating. You know, yesterday I was reading this article in the Wall Street Journal that a recent poll found that Catholic clergy tended to be more conservative than Catholic congregants here in the United States and that that gap was growing wider and wider according to this poll. And yet it's tricky because within Catholicism, for example, the more socially conservative forces tend also to be the more mystical ones as well, at least going back to Vatican II. And Vatican II is seen as ushering in a somewhat more inclusive or socially liberal culture in the church, and the current pope has, to some degree, abetted that. But when you dig into the lives and the careers of some of the real supposed hardcore conservatives, including some of the thinkers and figures around Pope John Paul II, they were also the more hardcore mystical. They believed in signs and wonders. They believed in miraculous healings. They wanted the church to beatify more saints, which which Pope John Paul II did. And it's tricky, too, in Judaism, because, of course, 
the Hasidic Jew sacralizes or attempts to every aspect of life. And yet that person in many cases is also very removed from the secular life that we're engaged in right now. They use flip phones. They, they in many cases, don't speak English. They, they speak Yiddish, and, and their social attitudes are extremely conservative. And sometimes, um, although I'm not singling them out by any means, extremely selfish, where you know, m- money that, that is public is, is directed to uh, extreme parochial schools and so forth. So it's a very tough mixed bag. The people in our midst, and we have them, who have elected to sacralize all of life can also be in some ways out of step with life as we know it, as many of your listeners know it, that can be jarring and and disturbing. So it's a tough needle to thread. It is. I mean, but even just from an ethical standpoint, if you want to live a sacred life, it's really hard to walk into a Walmart, you know, or certainly as a customer, because you understand if you if you have a regular sitting practice, you can't purchase something at Walmart without thinking, what's the the What's the total carbon footprint of this? What enslaved people made this thing? Where was it shipped from? Where were the materials taken? You know, so that living a secular life as a spiritual person, I mean, for me, provokes so much guilt, so much shame. I mean, not that the shame is a valuable, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a little valuable. It's not a valuable emotion necessarily, but um, it's hard. I mean, I understand when I look at, there was that great show from uh, um, called Stissel on Netflix about the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. And for a while, you watch it and you think, you know, I kind of get it. It's like an urban Pennsylvania Dutch. We're going to study this stuff and maintain uh, and maintain this. But it was ultimately they resented and were completely dependent on the tax dollars of the Zionists, you know, to, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> to maintain this lifestyle. Well, one of the... I don't know if this is an off-ramp precisely, yeah. but one of the adjacent ideas found in the work of the spiritual philosopher G.I. Gurdjieff is that, and I mean, we're already talking about a, a man whose work was generations ago, but he felt that the modern individual was stripped of awareness of where the consumer goods came from or any kind of goods, crafts, what have you, foods being consumed. And he said, you know, the ideal is that if a person looks at a chair, he ought to know or at least have some question, where did this thing really come from in the most basic terms? Who shellacked it? Who painted it? Who forged the nails that hold it together if it uses nails? Who designed it? Where's the wood from? Where, you know, how was the, 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 the chainsaw power that cut the wood? And he's not asking you to let go of the reins of consumption, which would be impossible for most of us, but at least really know, really have an idea, be interested in or in the know about where stuff comes from. And he felt that that was part of humanity's decline, that humanity just didn't even know where the utensils on its table came from, much less have any interest in it. I don't know if it's an off-ramp, but it was something he always taught. No, it's interesting. I mean, it's almost going back to Aristotle's four causes. How many causes 
you know, can you identify for the thing that you're sitting on? You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, including, yeah, I must yeah. say, the unintelligible. You know, I right. mean, we're all sitting around waiting for this Pentagon report on UFOs to come out. We'll see what happens. But there's the unintelligible as well. And the willingness to say, I really, really don't know, and not to vault in the direction of belief or disbelief, but a kind of suspension. And that's a lot, you know, a lot of your work. And I want to almost go over some of the chapters in the, because they're like little essays in the, in the new book. But a lot of your, your work seems to be about helping us tolerate the unknown, just tolerate, just how do you, you know, and to, for me, it's how do you experience that the, the unknown and the uncertain as pleasurable, as if we seek out the uncertain as our sport rather than avoid the uncertain as, as a fear? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's funny. In a lot of spiritual traditions, we're taught that the seeker has to verify things for him or herself. But I find that that's offered more politically than it is actually, because in practice, most of the time the idea is, well, go away, think this over, and when you agree with exactly what I do, <laughs> then come back and we'll move on to the next chapter. Whereas I had a epiphanic moment uh, years ago where I was sitting in a group meeting of a very intellectually driven group dedicated to studying esoteric spiritual ideas. And it was a group composed of really, really fine first-class intellects. And I asked a question of one of the senior members, and he misheard my question, but his response proved very valuable. He said, there are no shortcuts. And we all are inclined to nod our heads in agreement with that because it sounds as natural a piece of advice as washing your hands. And yet I thought to myself, I don't I don't know that. I don't know, in fact, that there are no shortcuts. You're saying there are no accelerants? Well, William James talked about accelerants. You know, he talked about conversion experiences or moments of clarity. And some people who are Christian talk about born-again experiences. And there could be any number of things. I was very struck by the testimony of a psychologist that I read years ago, where he said there was a woman in his office, one of his patients, whose husband was this really tough, hard-edged businessman. And she suspected that he was having an extramarital affair. So she confronted him with her suspicions. He confirmed them and, and immediately said, not only am I having an affair, but I want a divorce. And she was terrified because her whole life economically depended upon this man. And she knew that the divorce proceedings to come were going to be very, very rough. And she was worried about being left without enough resources. And the, the client later told her shrink that she walked out into the parking lot after their session, and she had this moment of clarity, you could call it an epiphany, where she realized, you know what? I really, really am truly alone in the world. I'm really in a position of total isolation. But instead of it causing her despair, it caused her a kind of euphoria because she was so thrilled to finally come to this place of unvarnished truth and not try to hide from mm -hmm. it or talk to her friends and get all the, well, what about this or do this or get a good lawyer. She came to terms with the gravity of her situation and it did transform the situation for her. And that was at least the testimony. So 
Just for example, when we speak of there being no shortcuts, it sounds so commonsensical. But is it true? Is it true? I'm citing a very elementary example, but there could be other things in a person's life, including material things, it must be said, that could just open a doorway that's never been considered. And I really want people to feel at liberty to go there. Well, and plus, I mean, for better or for worse, there are shortcuts. There are you know, yeah. time space bends. You can get from one place to another. I've seen it on Star Trek, Absolutely, and I believe there it. are shortcuts. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and and I believe there are shortcuts that can bring unbelievable tonic to one's existence. Like, for example, and this is a theme I return to again and again, and have no plans to stop: getting away from cruel people. Mm. I feel that our therapeutic and spiritual cultures talk far too little about the problem of human cruelty. And I'll hear people say how insulted they are by their mother-in-law, for example, and, and, and that this has been a problem that's persisted for years and years. Therapy, prayer, meditating, chanting, burning incense, doesn't make a dent in it. What should I do? And I always ask them, can't you just get away from this person? Declare this person persona non grata in your house. You're not coming over for Thanksgiving. You're not coming over for Passover. And they say, well, I can't do that. You know, I want my kids to grow up with their grandma. Those are valid concerns. But if the person really is cruel, and presumably your kids have other positive role models in their lives, you could do it. You could do it. Well, my husband will object. Okay, that's a consequence. There's always consequences, and some consequences may be too great to bear, and that's legit. But never exclude that radical possibility. You right. are with this person by choice. Right. I mean, there's also, though, there's, I mean, I'm sure you've had them. I've had, actually, the the clearer I get with myself and with others, the more easily I can lose what had been good friends you know, I've got I've got some friends who've either changed, you know, not just because they've changed politically, but they've gotten really uh, mean spirited in their political transformation in ways that are just uh, or, or or people who've just done done wrong. And I'll, I'll cut them off, but then feel like, well, there's going to be karmic debt in that. Here's this soul that I haven't resolved with. So now I'm going to have to come back and see this person again and deal with it. Do you know what I mean? There's that fear that, that, that I haven't, I haven't done the necessary work. Well, I would say two things. It, it, there's consequences to anything. I, I don't, I think a man could just sit in his house all day long and 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 there's there's going to be consequences and they're frequently mm. going to be unforeseen. But I've always been challenged by something that Nietzsche wrote. Um I think it was in Beyond Good and Evil. And Nietzsche had, I think, a very fine understanding of karma in the classical sense. He wrote a good or a bad to us has to be repaid. But who's to say that it has to be repaid to the person who did it? Mm. And it's a difficult statement because it sounds implicitly unfair at first. Well, should a bystanding pedestrian suffer because someone stole something from me or what have you? But Nietzsche's idea, I would argue, is pretty close to the impersonal nature of karma in the most classical sense. Right. And there are different iterations of karma, of course. But karma can be this 
brutal, untamed beast that creates um, a, a, a judicious outcomes, let's say, across vast stretches of time. And one could also say, well, gee, look, if I find Nietzsche's statement unfair in the negative, is it also unfair in the positive? We like to use the expression, pay it forward in our culture. Right. Someone does nice you know, for me, I do nice for Mike standing on the corner. That doesn't seem so bad. That seems kind of a, a, almost like a proper uh, irrigation of good tidings. But Nietzsche is challenging us and saying, well, you know, listen, it may be the same with bad tidings. Debt has to be paid and it's going to get paid, but there's no telling and we can't direct where it'll get paid. Right. And and as we as we develop or mature, um, we we I mean, going to one of the first topics in your book, you know, we amass a certain uh, power. You know, we we do. And, you know, you've you've written about power It's certain, earlier than this book, but in this one also. And when when you first were writing about power, I was thinking that you meant it. Oh, like Tony Robbins, absolute power, you know, but you're using power in a different in a different way. And I was hoping, you know, you could kind of share kind of what you what you came to understand about power and how we um, determine how and when to use it. I see it as self-agency. I see it as a sense of agency to see through some reasonable iteration of what we want in the world around us or what we want in terms of our own most intimate personhood. You know, the other night I was at a bar and the bartender was an individual who you might look at and say, well, that's kind of an ordinary looking person. But this individual was done up like it was you know, Johnny Rod in 1977. And, and, and it had an electrifying magnetic quality. And I thought to myself, there's a power in that. There's a power in that. Rather than just kind of taking off the shelves ideas of what the five choices are for what a human being can look like, this person just went wild and created a, a Jackson Pollock painting out of the self. And I thought, that's power. That's the kind of power I'm interested in. And it, it could go in all directions, I must say. You know, I mean, the reviled Donald Trump made a statement that I've never been able to find, but it sounds a hell of a lot like him. He said to a financial reporter years ago, what good is something if you can't put your name on it? And I thought to myself, that's so disgusting. That's everything I hate about Trump. I've got 10 different good answers right here yeah. for that, <laughs> mister. But I thought, why not just live with that for a second? Why not just live with that grotesque statement <laughs> for a second? Because I, I remember years ago, an editor of an academic journal said to me, you know, you don't have to put your name on everything that you write. And I thought to myself, that is a formula for utter frustration. I want to be expressive. I want to be seen. I want there to be an audience. I feel torn apart by that suggestion. And these are the kinds of questions that I find myself confronting in matters of power. And I think we as a spiritual or a seeking community, we as a seeking community have to be willing to engage those questions and not just think, power. That's grotesque. That's Donald Trump. That's, that's, that's Darth Vader before he became so sympathetic, you know, and, and, and we all have that yearning. And I think that we do an injustice to ourselves to hide from it. And most of us are not Darth Vader. Most of us are not dictators of empires, you know, and, you know, the, the fact right. that those villains could be used to make 
maybe not me, but to make the meek even more downtrodden than they already are, you know, is, yeah. is, a, is a crime. You know, it's, it's, cognitive, it's cognitive damage at that point, yeah, which is really... Well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I was reading um, Machiavelli's The Prince uh, lately, and I found that Machiavelli, if I can trust the translations I'm reading, had a much better character and ethics than a Trump, for example. He talked about the importance of not causing unnecessary divisions, of leaving a population to its own devices to the greatest extent possible, of surrounding yourself with wise and careful and cautious people, not something Trump is reputed to have done. And and it's interesting as well because Machiavelli who is seen as the dark lord of real politic, was also operating in a Europe where treaties very often didn't hold. There were court intrigues and backstabbings everywhere. And his attitude was, look, I am I am just dealing with the world as it's been handed down to me. Uh, and, and, and here's my advice, take it or leave it. So it, it's interesting, you know, the, what you were saying though about we're not all you know, dictators or rulers of empire or what have you. It's so important that we be willing to engage these principles in terms of the quotidian realities of day-to-day life. You know, you, you, you say to somebody, well, I believe in this, and then the Hitler equation is is two, two you know, beats away. Yeah. Whereas, of course, most of us don't deal with questions of ultimate evil or ultimate violence, but we deal with questions of, will I really keep my word to somebody because I said I would do something, or will I be 48 hours late, or will I do this, or will I do that? And, and, and more importantly, what do I do that does violence to another person uh, emotionally, subtly insulting them or putting them down or, you know, looking for a fight or, you know, asking a rhetorical question? Those are the things that are really within our grasp to grapple with, whereas the ultimate questions most of the time are not. You know, most of the time they're not. But and your and your books certainly go into this is that there is that sense of a slippery slope from, you know, theosophy and and Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking to Trump, to Evola, to Bannon, to, <laughs> to hell, yeah, right? Yeah. And it concerns me because, I mean, I see even people I respect then kind of, um, maybe without enough research, kind of quoting theosophy and saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, I want to take a sort of Blavatsky approach toward this political situation. And like saying, well, do you understand kind of where that... It goes to a kind of nasty place if you're not really careful. Well, it's interesting. I, 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 I recognize what you're saying. I absolutely do. And uh, Steve Bannon is an interesting example. Steve and I used to be friends, and mm. I've I've cut off that relationship because I can't stomach this election denialism. I mean, that's the place where I will never go. I, I find it just absolutely undermining of of everything that that glues our society together i also think it's just flat out wrong and provably so yeah and and then yet i must say douglas like you i'm sure i've known so many people who use terms like um service or thy will be done or you know inclusivity or what have you and they're power seeking in the most grotesque way i've been in progressive organizations where you know 
I mean, if it was a hurricane and, you know, somebody wouldn't drive two blocks out of their no, way I've, to make I've, sure you I've got, got home safe. And I mean that I, quite literally. I know. And I don't talk about them on this show so much, but I will to you. I've got some of my you know best friends from Ivy League colleges who I knew who go, you know, work for the blue this or the blue that. And they 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 are are looking at the map of Democratic candidates to figure out which one they can become a consultant for and make the most money. You know, basically right. marketing them and their policies, and then you get a job and a seat warmer at an NGO. And and <laughs> I understand that the that the 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 institutional left is a giant corrupt awful thing. And I <laughs> I understand why people are mad at it. Right. But that doesn't um as again as a as a nice little Jewish boy, you know, worried about the next uprising where, you know, we get clobbered based on blood libel or fear of a Zionist banking conspiracy. I always feel like the the um the 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 the, the theosophic strain is often just a, a warning light for me that okay, where where is this particular movement going? You know, and and <laughs> are they a danger well, to me? I I would say this in practice, and I I'm very deeply ensconced in the Theosophical Society. It's the one organization in which I actually have membership, mm. or hasn't kicked <laughs> me out yet. You know, so <laughs> as we're speaking, I'm deeply ensconced, and I don't find the things that you're referencing um present in in right. practice i think they're larger kind of cultural strains right and look madame blavatsky she wrote as many people did in the victorian era in very very careless ways about kind of i say i guess neo-darwinism mm -hmm. maybe i could say you know neo-darwinism and and that is that is justly alarming. And she made efforts, insufficient ones, insufficient ones to point out that she wasn't talking about races. She was talking about epochs of spiritual development. But 157 pages later, she would use a racial reference that was sloppy and that was poor. I don't think it represented her core outlook, but she could use colloquialisms that she didn't have control over. And, and I recognize what you're saying. I also feel it's endemic to the human situation uh, to be power seeking. And there's a violence in, mm. in, in, in a, or there can be a force in that, a force in that, that shows up always and everywhere. And it seems to me something that's not so much yeah. from any one idea, but very deeply embedded in human nature. Yeah, but even without the power part. So let's say you look at the, the aspects of my own work that are suspect of this would be a book like Team Human, which I write about humans and how we come from nature and, you know, and, 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 you know, I am not an animal or I, I am, I am not a, I'm not a number, you know, I am a creature of God and I am a part of nature and one with nature and we're all connected in this one thing. And I see the same words like coming out of the mouth of the woman who got elected, uh, the, the ultra right woman who got elected to the head of the parliament in Italy, you know, in her acceptance yes. speech, I'm not a number, right, I'm not a consumer, right. machines cannot control me. So, and, and I go, oh, wow, there's a real overlap between me and and Hitler, even. <laughs> you know? Well, we both like psychedelics. We both like nature. Right. We both We're like humans. Yeah, vegetarian. Right. We like go. dogs um, <laughs> and kids. Um, and 
Well, I would say, Douglas, this is the critical difference between you and the woman who just got elected the the head of the Italian parliament. The, the conspiracist view, in my estimation, is always on the search for a hidden foe. You're not looking for a hidden foe. Your attitude is tech can be dehumanizing, tech can be violative, and as wonderful as it is, it is to our great peril not to realize that. You're not looking for the bad guy, the hidden hand, the person to blame. And the conspiracist outlook is always on the march looking for a hidden foe or a hidden enemy. Mm. And it usually takes the shape of very familiar tropes. Globalists, Jews, witches, Satanists. <laughs> I mean, there's all, these are very common, you know, yeah. uh, 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 QAnon tropes. Or, you know, sometimes they're slightly disguised, sometimes they're not. But there's always an excuse to burn down somebody's village. And it's because they're the bad guy behind the scenes fucking with things. The last place I'm going to look is in the mirror. The last place I'm going to look is at economic policy or yeah. tech policy or heaven for fend should someone regulate Elon Musk, you know. Right. And, and you're looking for antecedents that are understandable and graspable and visible and don't require anybody's village to get burned down. And 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 conspiracists uh, are looking for a hidden foe who needs to be eradicated, right. so that the rest of us good people can breathe free. Right. We get rid of the pederasts. We haul them out to the street. Do mass executions, right. and then society is all better. It's just like good luck. Exactly. Good luck, <laughs> good luck finding them. Always the belief from yeah. you know. Yeah, always the belief from from deepest antiquity to today. You know, the guys over the next hill, everything would be great if it weren't for them. Yeah. Right, because all the way back to Sodom, you know, it's Sodom. I still yeah. don't know what they were doing in Gomorrah, but I know what they were doing in Sodom. And, right. and I've done it myself, and it's not a bad thing. Um, right. <laughs> at least the main, the main you've, thing. You've, you've Gomorrized. Right. <laughs> I haven't Gomorrized. You're I don't a Gomorrant. Yeah. I might have Gomorrized. I just did, the, the definition has not... Has not stayed. Oh my gosh. But you know, there there is, even if there's not a, a secret enemy, there is, and you've written about it too, the sort of Western um Western mechanization and domination. This the uh, uh, seeming um I won't call it a conspiracy, but but this conscious effort by early scientists to say Royal Academy of Scientists, along with uh, uh, you know Francis Bacon, to vilify their competition, which was women healers who knew how to use everything, to call them witches. And these guys are atheists; they obviously don't believe in witchcraft, you know. And they call the women witches to get approval of the church. And we seem to, um, um, for the last five hundred years. Anyway, that they've been dominating thought, which is why what you do is considered countercultural at this point, even though it's the most pro-cultural activity I can imagine. And what they do is 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 the real culture. So how do you how do you believe that we can sort of reverse or temper or balance this sort of you know what some of us call white male toxic masculinity, but is really just this sort of Western mechanism domination. Uh, 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 mindset. You know, it's what, what I've been writing about, but I don't really know how to reverse it except to stop buying their stuff and hang out with each other. Well, one thing I've committed to on social media, which is where, let's face it, we spend most of our lives, I will not engage in trash talk, cruel sarcasm, rhetorical questions, bullshit exchanges with people who are writing in bad faith or writing strictly to provoke. I won't do it. And I've had people, sometimes prominent people, attack me on social media, and I, 
I won't engage in it. And I, 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 it took me years uh, to get to that place. And it is within the power of the individual. And you feel a hell of a lot better, I can tell you from experience, because when mm. we engage in these things, especially when we instigate them, I think we feel a kind of shame. I think we feel a kind of degradation. And we sublimate that by just going back to the bottle and taking another swig, and it keeps going and going and going. And I don't think we as a human community are going to make it if if we don't get in front of this hateful language that populates most online discourse, including in the most mundane matters where somebody will be a smart ass just because they can and think it has no effect whatsoever. It has an effect on the individual, the individual doing it as much as the person toward whom it's directed. People complain in private, oh, I have a poor self-image. Most of us feel we have a, a lacking self-image. I think tonic for self-image can include, and immediately so, desisting from trash talk. It's the last place we yeah. look and we engage in it 24 seven online. And yet it's within the capacity of the individual to do that. Message, do you, is there a spiritual path and maybe, uh, maybe actually Judaism was meant as this, but is there a spiritual path that's just focused? Not, you don't, doesn't matter what you believe or understand or what rituals you do or whatever, but that's totally focused on kind of your comportment, just how you move through the world, just move through the world as a fucking mensch, as a, just a nice, gentle person. Doesn't, can't that be a spiritual path? I I think it can. <laughs> Maybe a spiritual path with no name is the best path, you know. I mean, I remember once I was talking to uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who did a lot to popularize um, mind-body therapy, mm. therapeutic meditation, and so on. And I said, do you consider yourself a Buddhist? And he said, no, I used to, but I no longer do. And I thought that was a very shrewd answer because he was doing two things at once. The first is he wants to get his mind-body stress reduction programs instituted at hospitals. So it doesn't help him to have a religious right. label hanging around his neck. But what could be more classically Buddhist than saying, no, fuck that. I belong to nothing. You know, I mean, isn't that supposed to be the <laughs> ultimate goal? Yeah. You're not attached to even the teaching or the teacher himself. So I honored that. I, I, I thought he was sincere, but he was also extremely shrewd in, in coming to that place. And uh, sincerity and shrewdness conserve one another. And I thought, uh, I, I liked the answer. I liked it. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a question you write about in the book really beautifully. Um, it's the one that stuck with me most, is the, the, what if you're praying to the wrong God? Yeah. You know, and to sit Now we're getting into for, Satanism. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but not even just Satan. We're getting into Judaism too. It's like, yes. it's like, it's anything. It's like what? What if? What if we're? What if you're praying to the and to really take that in? You know, to really yeah. take that in. It's like, well, shoot. If you know, if Yahweh or Adonai or the abstract Jewish God is not the right one, it's like I'd really like to get into Aphrodite personally. You know, <laughs> I, I I invite you to. <laughs> but, um, but but am I gonna, aren't I going to get in trouble? Is Yahweh going to be? He said he's the Bible. He says he's a jealous God. So I'm not, and like yes. one of my commandments is I'm not even allowed to worship anything. But if Yahweh or God is really God of everything, then can I just worship one face of God that happens to be Aphrodite? Isn't that still legal? <laughs> it's it's fascinating. There's so much to unpack there, but 
I've gotten in a lot of trouble for that passage. Uh-huh. What if you're praying to the wrong God? It's, that the, most valuable, got me it's ca- the most valuable passage you've re- written in your career. For me, it's the most valuable passage because it's, it's unsolvable. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that very deeply. I, I got kicked out of a new age organization with, with, with whom I had years of productive collaboration. That's okay. Now you're a member of sentence. team. We'll take you in team human. You're a special team honorific human. member. You're, you, it compensates. Team, team hominid. Uh, yes. Because <laughs> I'm getting interested in Neanderthal religion. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. Team hominid. I, fine. I, it's funny when I when I received my letter of dismissal, huh. it was that very phrase, that very phrase. What if you're praying to the wrong god? That the uh, the boss man felt the most umbrage over, the most umbrage, and yet that question came to me because, to be completely frank with you. I had things in my life that I felt were not working, and I had walked for many, many, many years an, a, what I think you could call an Abrahamic spiritual path. Yeah, I'm interested in new thought. I'm interested in all kinds of things, but the idea that there is this one Jehovah, Yahweh, God, call it what you wish, and 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 that's where the appeals have to go, or maybe you can find an intermediary like a saint. But I wonder, do I have to accept this paradigm? Must I accept this paradigm? And if I exit this paradigm, and am I thereby, as you were suggesting, risking consequence? And the answer to that question is, of course, yes. I mean, <laughs> I, I could come up with all kind of pretty answers, but... <laughs> Of course there's a risk of consequence. It would be immature to say that there right. wasn't. So I dove into this deep end of the pool and I said to myself, let's see what's going to happen. Let's see what's going to happen. And I'm I mean, Douglas, I said to myself, I'm I'm willing for the sake of the search to sustain the possible consequence. Right. That you'd be like the husband and Rosemary's baby and end up Stuck with the devil or something. Whatever. Yeah. It's worth a shot. God damn, if only he wasn't so <laughs> likable. Guy Woodhouse. <laughs> likable man, you know. Yeah. Well, the other way to look at it, though, which is interesting, too. I mean, uh, I've always thought the reason why the Jews had the nameless, faceless God was going to one of your earlier points. Of how do you get away from cruel and evil people? Right. I think the in, in Torah, what they teach is the way they get away from the cruel and evil person who is Pharaoh is they have to um, they have to smash the idols that Pharaoh believes in because they believe in them too. In other words, if you believe in the same idols, the same gods as the bad person, which in in Pharaoh's case were the Egyptian gods, you've got to smash them. So you do the plagues, which basically are the desecration of each of the gods that the Israelites must have believed in. Once the last one is gone, they can leave, you know, rebirth themselves into Canaan or whatever, and they get away from the bad guy. But then, I guess, what happens then when their god becomes, even if he's an abstract god, even if he's what, 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 when he becomes an idol, then what do you do? Then you're back worshiping the wrong God again. You've got to renew, you know, you got, you've got to smash your image of God in order to, uh, you know, I agree <laughs> experience with the holy. And apropos of getting away from cruel people, if one looks at the Exodus as a basic parable of the human situation, they did leave. They didn't right. stick around and say, well, you know, there are some cognitive exercises we can do to get along <laughs> with fear. You know, they left. And, Again, I I feel that that is such an overlooked option 
that that the human being has and i i feel insufficient attention has been paid to it you know you look at a i think frankly there's a lot of people out there in the world who are poorly situated in life and and look obviously there are problems of crushing poverty and a lack of social immobility that that results from much greater factors but if an individual is not really falling under those deep countervailing forces, a lot of people suffer a crisis of character, self-image, basic happiness and contentment, and they go to their shrinks and they go to their friends and they go to clergy and they read all the self-help books, and never once are they told, you must exit, you must get away from this person and burn your bridges behind you. And it is an option. I can speak personally that Mm. it has lent greater tonic to my life than any other one single step, any other one single step. And I, I suffered lifelong from anxiety, never depression, but anxiety, big problem I've wrestled with ever since I was a little kid. And a great deal of anxiety can lift when you relocate decisively to settings and circumstances that are more immediately amenable to you. And I don't think we consider that enough. Right. Well, at the same time, we also don't, you know, I I was talking about my dad lately and how um, he always used to tell us, you know, they were raised, he was raised in a tenement on the Lower East Side, you know, nine people bathing in the same bucket or whatever, you know, those, all those stories. And he worked hard and earned money so he could get out of that neighborhood and raise us in the suburbs and do well. And yes, he did. And it's beautiful, but, or rather, and you could stay where you are and make that neighborhood better. Because eventually when the whole world is a bad neighborhood of a sort, you can't just leave. I mean, that's Elon Musk's strategy, right? <laughs> leave the neighborhood, mm-hmm. let's go to Mars. It's like, no, you can turn around and say, well, let's let's do this. Let's do this better. I mean, there is another option. There is an option. And if that option leads to satisfaction, I embrace yeah. it. But if an individual is saying, what do I really feel as a mature being is going to be yeah. best for me, for my family, for the people I love? You know, uprooting uh, is, yeah. is one option. But of course, I am talking about intimate things and the company we keep. And we, as human beings, put ourselves into horrible company that is mm. that is just predictably bad over and over again. And in those situations, we have to ask ourselves, what do I really want? I know people who serial date. And then they have all these crazy stories about, I met this nut, I met that nut. Well, do you really want a date? Do you really do you really want a boyfriend or a girlfriend? I, I, I know there are, are needs that that satisfies, but you could be alone, you know, maybe you enjoy the friction of these shitty dates. You know, I, I think we have to be really frank with ourselves. Yeah. I mean, the, the other big question I have on, on emerging from your book is whether magic is doing stuff or seeing stuff, you know what I mean? Or, or a little bit of both. So, you know, my daughter manifests, she's on TikTok, she manifests, right? And she, she fully believes, you know, and she just had this whole, really, all, it's just the process through which you apply to college is awful. And she mm-hmm. ended up, you know, um, 
there's the one college she really, really wanted to go to. And we knew the day that they're going to send the message and all. She leaves rehearsal from high school early so we can go home and she can check the computer or whatever to see what happened. And she gets in the car and we have the Broadway satellite, whatever station on in the car. And the song comes on um, from You're in Town. And she goes, oh, my God, I was just talking about that song with my friend in the rehearsal. I got in. So for her, and then five minutes later, the announcement is on her thing. She got in. For her, the the sign, the synchronicity to her, the way she navigates the universe, that synchronicity was enough to be, oh, it worked. <laughs> she yeah. got she yeah. got her answer <laughs> from the universe. Um, so to me, magic is almost more that magic, or the the best of magic is this sense of rightness of the signs are there. Not the sign sounds again so friggin' weird to say it, but the the underlying patterns confirm themselves to you in ways that are not answerable and that is somehow a way of saying yes you're on the right path but you're on the right capital p path that that the universe is trying to tell you we got your back we got you here you know what i mean yeah so which it's is not, the wizardry the, you know is it or is it it's the biggest question <laughs> one of the things i've been working with lately is I personally use the term select rather than manifest because one of my questions, and I'm compressing so much into the size of a marble, but I want to be respectful <laughs> of our time together. One of my questions is whether emotionally persuasive perception, perspective is actualizing and whether everything that we experience as so-called past, present, future is an interplay of perception with this world, you know, and of course, you talk about particle physics and well, how can you extrapolate that to the macro world? Well, what the hell else are we, you know, pan the pan the microscope back a few, yeah. you know, light years and we're nothing but the same damn particles, you know, where these discrete bodies of matter that are uh, you know, quantum, where the smallest thing's going. And I have very real questions about that. Now, everything you're describing, which was emotionally very meaningful to your daughter and should be, um, the materialist would say, oh, confirmation bias, which is just right. an overused term for prejudice, never applied back at the person who's actually using it because he or she has materialist beliefs that are as important yes. um, as whatever the ones are that I hold. And – or or – uh, they might say, well, law of large numbers. You know, it's a damn big world, so weird things have to happen to somebody. But those actuarial tables uh, start to break down. When things get increasingly and increasingly fantastic, they would be impossible but for the fact that they actually occurred. Uh, in <laughs> one of my books, Daydream Believer, I write about a park ranger from Virginia who holds the Guinness World Record for getting struck by lightning. Right. The man was struck seven times. Later died of a suicide, actually. Was struck seven times, according to medical records. Literally, almost any meteorologist or anybody who studies such things would have said, well, that's impossible. But for yeah. the fact that it happens, you can't even represent the number. I think right. we have a name <laughs> for it, but it's so large, it's unfathomable, literally. And, and yet... It's impossible, but for the fact that it occurred. And when we start to analyze certain meaningful things in our lives, the emotional component 
that we feel over those things makes the stats of large numbers harder and harder to tabulate because these emotional components, they're very intimate. They're very meaningful to the individual. It's not just, oh, something strange happened. A penny stood on its side. I might have an emotional attachment to that that is so deeply individualized that three of those events happening in a row are off the tables of 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 any causality. And that's if there's magic, that's where it resides. And it may be as simple as emotionally persuasive perception. All the founders of quantum physics were believers in a perceptual basis of reality, and they meant it. They weren't using metaphors, and they weren't kidding around. And this question of a perceptual basis of reality, I think, is among the hottest questions that we as humans face. And it would it would open up such possibilities if we really learn to play with it, you know, you know, because then That's you're what I'm back, trying. right. <laughs> Cause then you're, then it becomes a great defense. And I would even, even call it positive thinking. It becomes a great defense of, of, of intentional thinking, do you know, of, of thinking yes. intended to do stuff. Exactly. Determinative thinking. Determinative thinking is, is one of the phrases that I use and that I more and more prefer. The, the, the potential cruelty of positive thinking is not so much that it blames the victim, although that does go on yeah. and I care about that. But the potential cruelty is that the formula is always you have to work yourself into the feeling state of having received the thing desired. It's scriptural in basis where Christ taught, uh, pray as though you've received and so you shall. So it becomes this question of faith. But the person who's in grief or anxiety or depression or who's afraid and very legitimately afraid, perhaps, they can't work themselves into that emotional state. The emotions are stronger than thought or we wouldn't be suffering from addictions or emotional outbursts or what have you. Emotions run on their own track and they're incredibly powerful. So asking someone to condition their emotions is almost ask the impossible in many cases. I've wondered whether the clearly defined intention, wish, determination, whatever you call it, itself may be enough to trigger those perceptual agencies, if I can put it in that sense. Could we, could we, apropos of your wish for a kind of religion without liturgy, without rules, without walls, could we just via the focused and passionately felt wish in and of itself enact those energies and or agencies or whatever one wants to call them? They're all metaphors. And so that's something I'm experimenting with. Would that be an off-ramp from this conundrum that the positive thinking model, which is scripturally based, mm. has left us with? Right. And it's also part, I mean, I remember when it was one of Bush's people that originally said, oh, we don't, you know, we don't react to history. We, we, uh, we make history. In other words, that they, that you create, they were saying, we create reality. It's okay. We're, we're Republic. We're going to be fine. You know, Democrats are busy doing policies. We just wish for what we want and it will happen. I forgot which Bush advisor it was. And I was like, well, that's actually kind of cool. <laughs> you know, I go with that. But when, when, when we describe what you're really talking about or what my daughter was experiencing, it's like, even, even if you do it with intention or something, there's a moment at which, and this is the favorite moment for me. There's a moment at which it changes from 
I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, push the universe in a certain way, or I'm going to encourage the universe to open certain possibilities to this other place of the universe is just my fucking friend. In other words, you, you, there's a let go. And then it's almost as if the, the, the momentum of life itself encourages all these things. Do you know what I mean? It's like you start not coasting exactly. You're still working and doing, but it's like the universe is, is not your enemy. It wants to collaborate with you, do you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a different perspective. It's a different orientation, a different mindset. It's one I have to say I've never really been able to get into because of the anxiety equation. Whatever causes mm. it, I'm always catastrophizing. I'm always wondering, you know, oh, God, I don't have AA batteries, and, you know, my kid's not going to be able to use his Halloween costume, and he can be mad, and then, and then I'm going to lose my, you know, I'm using a very it sounds small like me example, going to, That's the way I go to sleep at night. It's always those things start circling in my head, right? Sleep and wake, and so I've never been able to get into that place of viewing um, my surroundings as a friend, but that's why this question of a, of a focused really clarified, passionately felt, and defined wish, if there's something there to the perceptual basis of reality that can be extrapolated into daily life, I'm, I'm working with that. I'm, I'm working with it. But the wish part is, feels so kind of Western and anti-Buddhist, right? If, you, you're, if you're a Buddhist, you don't make a preference. I don't want to be, I mean, as yep. a, I remember arguing with McKenna about this back when. If you're a real Buddhist, you can't even take DMT, right? Because you're intentionally changing your state to something else. Well, what's wrong with where you are? I I dig that, and I think what you framed is 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 accurate. This is why I actually do part ways. I would say <laughs> both with Vedic <laughs> right, and right. Abrahamic tradition. Right. I, I I do believe that the emotionally mature individual of just about any age is capable of defining what makes him or her happy. And there may be course corrections in that. But I really got tired at a certain point on the path of having that question taken away from me. You know, I remember I was talking to a shrink once and he was a good guy, very good guy. And he asked me, what do I want in life? And I announced it. And he said, well, that's superficial. And I said to him, look, you've known me for a lot of years. Do you really think I'm being superficial? Or am I perhaps just finally willing to be frank about what I really want? Now, we hear these nostrums, money can't make you happy. This can't make you happy. Well, why don't you find out? Why don't you find out? Those are frequently said by people who don't have those things. You know, yeah. if, if, And they're frequently said, I might add, by people who wouldn't give those things up if they were asked to, you know, right. take David Brooks, a columnist for the New York Times. David is a very good intellect who takes way too much shit. So I apologize for giving him more shit, but he inspired this insight. David wrote a column years ago saying, um, you know, I realized at a certain point how indifferent I was to having just another bestseller, just another this, just another that. And I thought to myself, well, David, would you would you give that up? Would you release that stuff? Would you like to be, you know, a a, a columnist for you know someplace else and not have people know your name? And I, I wasn't persuaded by it. I simply was not persuaded by it. And and I think the it's a very private answer. But the individual, I think, has to experience something to determine. Well, this or this will or will not make me happy. I, I want to know. I want to verify. 
Right. I mean, unfortunately, life is too short to verify everything. You may lose. Yeah, you may lose. Yeah. And I come to terms with that. I mean, I noticed the other day, I don't know if this has struck you, but I'm 57 years old. I've noticed an uptick of the names I'm recognizing in the obituary section. Oh, my gosh, and, you know, yeah. I mean, Jacob Needleman, Milton Viorst. And I'm like, why am I noticing more people? Oh, because right. the phone call is coming. You know, and it's it's real and it's heavy. It's heavy. But I have to try. You know, I have to try. It's I'm much heavy, happier but it's now also... at, than yeah. I was. It's also liberative in a way that you're going to go. Because then it's like, it helps. There's a certain nothing matters about it that to me is relieving. You know, I kind of shot my wad here. You know, I made my kid, I did my books, I've made my contribution. And now it's just like, ooh, let's, let's see what, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's see, see where what this will goes. happen. You know, you know which, I... I I really want it's to know. It's kind of cool. I really want I to know. I do too. We're going to know. You know. We are going to know. That's the one thing. Everybody finds out what happens after you die. Yeah. If we're still, <laughs> if there's something there, you know, which right. is of course the eternal right. question. <laughs> exactly. At least I have no fear that there, that I will be excluded from whatever happens. I mean, it might not be good, but I have no fear that I've done something that will just mean I don't get to see. <laughs> yeah. And I know there are things that I want to leave behind. I yeah. I said to my partner the other night, you know, I'm working on this book, Modern Occultism. If something should happen to me, here's my password. Go on my computer. Have Richard Smoley finish it for me. Tell him yeah. I said that. And I, I'm not trying to be morbid, you know, but let's face facts here, folks. <laughs> I know. I thought about the two. Oh, this is the last book. Who has the who can get into my Dropbox? Who's going to make sure this at least gets thrown up on Medium or something as a work right. in progress? Fernando Busima <laughs> has to finish it. He's a good man. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But there's also that, you know, you, you write, and I love it, you write about Lynch a little bit in, in the new book, you, in, in passing. And there's something beautiful about, and it's kind of a fun place to, to land this conversation too. The thing that I love so much about his work is it's not resolved. And that's so okay. Do you know that it's like, if he's allowed to, if he's allowed to do what he does, it I feel like it frees me up to do what I want to do in so many ways. I am not obligated to give the answer. I'm not obligated to get to a particular ending that I can share the mystery. I could share the, the, the paradox and that's enough, you know, and to trust he's trusting his dreams. He's tr and he's entrusting us with his dreams saying, here's what I saw. I don't know what it means. Kind of makes sense, but it kind of doesn't. Part of the key, I think, and I agree with all of that, part of the key to David's magic is that, and you find it tucked away in corners of interviews and, and, and the book that he wrote, he is such a master craftsman. He received such an education as a kid, knowing how to make things. His mastery of technical detail is extraordinary. David designs furniture, he paints, he does yeah. photography. He knows how computer tricks work, you know, and, and never mind just, you know, standard conventional filmmaking. His technical mastery is extraordinary. So he gained all this technical mastery as a young kid, and he knows how to do just so much stuff. The guy could be a cabinet maker, literally. Right. 
And I know, I've seen he got these he has these videos that he shoots in his backyard on how to make different things. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. In that movie, um, what was it? Uh Lost Highway. Uh, the the lead character Bill Pullman lives in this nice house perched on a hill in L.A. David made the furniture in the house. I mean, it's crazy. That's what he does. Almost like I'm not going to say like picking his teeth, but yeah, obviously it's an effort. But he grew so educated as a kid in so many different things, and that capacity to marry hardcore know-how to dreams gives him the ability to just tear up the rule book like all the great artists he was able to do it you know i always say to people mulholland drive for the first 45 minutes is this gripping thriller and then it gets all trippy and wild and none of us know what's going on but he could do hitchcock he could do hitchcock and then throw it out but my god the training that has to go into that i i tell people the hours that you have to log into your craft, whatever it may be, those hours, they are so requisite. They are so requisite. And, um, you know, someone will say to me, I'd like to write a science fiction novel about X. Well, you can do that. Just spend 30 years alone in a room, you know, drinking Gatorade and pulling on your vape stick, and you may damn well accomplish that. So the dreams are there and they matter. But, but that skill set... But there's no Arduous. shortcut to that skill set, right? That is true. That is true. <laughs> Not that I've ever witnessed. Not right. that I've ever witnessed. Unless, you know, you're, you're, you know, Muhammad receiving the verses, unless, you know, a person placed yeah. stock in that, you could, I suppose. Um, Helen Chuckman said that Course in Miracles just came to her. You know, she never intended to. So, but... But to to allow for that shortcut, I suppose you'd have to allow for the extra physical. But it's never been the case for me. I mean, anything I'm proud of has come from just arduous sweat equity. And then I can dance, you know. Yeah, but that's the same in your in your uh, occult and uh, uh, magical education and practice too. I mean, there's you've been doing this for a while, reading Long a heck of a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it came to me late in life, too. You know, I always like to remind people that I didn't publish my first book, Occult America, until I was 43, going on 44. So that's mm. part of the reason why I value it so much. It came late in relatively late in life. Right. After you were reading a lot. I mean, you were publishing and reading and oh, building absolutely. a knowledge base. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, the stuff that I never want to go through again helped me enormously. I remember there was one publishing season where I was responsible for 17 books, which is uh, ridiculous. And yeah. some of them were reprints and so forth. Some of them were anthologies, but still everything requires effort. And I said to a friend of mine who was in the production department, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And she said, you can and you will. And I'm really <laughs> glad I went through that. I don't want to repeat going through it, but I'm glad I did because I, I can produce things quickly because of that training. I mean, it's almost like muscular training. But it's interesting, the, the things that some things will come super easily as if by magic and other things you just work and work and work. You know, it's <laughs> there's always there's always it's not one or the other is the thing, I guess. It's always going to be a bit of both. Well, Gurdjieff made an interesting observation about being financially destitute with a group of his students stranded in Paris. They had fled the uh, Russian Revolution. Some of the students were in trouble for their lives because they were attached maybe in minor ways to the old regime. 
So they had to get out of there. And they made a very dangerous journey across Eastern Europe, Eurasia. They landed in Paris. They were destitute. And he said, I did everything I could to earn money. But we reached a point where we were busted and we were facing authentic disaster. And at that moment, his mother entered his room. She had arrived in Paris as part of a separate group of refugees uh, a few days earlier. And she said, there's something that you gave me that has been a burden on me and I want to return it to you. And she hands him a handkerchief. He unfolds it. And there's a very valuable, precious stone in this handkerchief that he gave her when she was fleeing Russia. And he thought, oh, I long ago thought this was bartered for food or bribing some border official. And he said, I could have I could have just gotten up and danced for joy. And he said, life is like that. It's lawful. It's lawful. Just this undying effort in the direction of one aim. And then something breaks and you can never tell from where. And when Gurdjieff would say something was lawful, I take that very seriously because of the gravity of the man himself. He and his students were not infrequently in life or death situations. And it's not just, you know, uh, the guy at the New Age store saying, you know, here, do this. There's a gravity from which that comes. I wrote a chapter about it called The Wish Machine in my book, Daydream Believer. And I, I think his account bears studying and bears reflecting on and bears experimenting with. And do you think it can happen on a, a civilizational level? You know, there's if we feel as a civilization now, we're like, you know, a penniless Gurdjieff trapped in a hotel room in, in near catastrophic <laughs> potential doom. Do you think... I'm trying to stay hopeful that we can shift the way we understand what's happening to us or what we're doing and flip it, you know, in a, a, a rather dramatically before it is too late. I don't know, Doug. I just simply don't know. Certainly generational outlook shift. I think we're living through one right now with the mainstreaming of the UFO thesis. People are still going to debate UFOs a hell of a lot, but with the release of the the Pentagon pre-report and the reportage that got put on the front page of the New York Times by Leslie Keen, Helene Cooper, Ralph Blumenthal, it marked a change, a turnaround in our culture where people feel very at liberty to talk about these things at their jobs, at other places where otherwise they might not have. I feel a change from several years ago. So, they do occur. They're rare, but they do occur. Yeah, funny. I remember Dennis Kucinich on the debate stage for the Democrats, and gosh, whatever that was, 96, 84 or something. And yeah. he gets up, yes, I've seen a UFO. And it's like it's like the next day, it's like his poll numbers go from like 25 to 3. <laughs> like, right, right. Which and perhaps they'd be the reverse today, you know. I know. And, uh, I you know, know, DeSantis should say he saw a UFO. <laughs> and there you go. Well, I'm still looking out for them, but um, but but I really appreciate this. If you're if you're whether or not your thoughts are causative in the greater universe, they've been causative for me. Um, <laughs> you've, Thank you. you've you've impacted my my heart, mind, and soul, and and uh, both in in scary in scary but ultimately positive ways. And I appreciate Thank that. You. you know, Thank your you so your, much. your writing in particular is really. Um, it's really good at taking our hand and walking us into potentially scary places. You know, I appreciate that enormously. Thank you. Yeah, and for uh, anyone who uh, wants uh, to read it, don't worry; he'll walk you back out again. He'll, you, he'll walk, bring you safely back. Um, so take the journey with uh, with Mitch Horowitz. Go to uncertain places with him, and um, and you will certainly uh, learn a lot. 
Thank you so much. It's so wonderful <laughs> having this exchange with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm glad you're in my life. It really means a lot. Back at you. Back at you for sure. For sure. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Mitchell Horowitz, the author of the new collection, Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences. You can find out more about Mitch and all of his work at MitchHorowitz.com. You can find out more about Mitch and all of our guests at TeamHuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. The next Team Human Kibitz Room will be on January 20th at 3 p.m. Eastern or noon West Coast time or 8 p.m. in the UK. That's January 20th, 2023, Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the Team Human Discord and click on Salon. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.